Well, I want to start uh, this morning by saying happy anniversary. Uh, it is actually our family's anniversary. We've been here one year now, officially this week. Uh, and so we are really thankful for that. That's not to toot our own horn. That's just to say thank you uh, for welcoming us as family. Uh, this church has really been a gift to us and to our whole family. Uh, we've just felt so welcomed and so cared for. And we've just been so encouraged to be a part of this body for this last year. Uh, we've loved your passion for the Lord, your passion for the Word, your passion to serve. I'm thankful for the elders uh, that I get to serve alongside of, the deacons, and so many other just faithful servants uh, who love to just pour out their lives for the progress and joy of other people's faith. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for welcoming us. Uh, I also want to give God praise uh, just because God's provided through you. You know, a few months back, we preached on exalting Christ through our finances, uh, through our stewardship of how we use our resources, and you have all responded. And by God's grace, you know, we have had above and beyond uh, what we needed month to month. We've even made up for some lack that we had in previous months. And so I'm very thankful for you. And I would say, don't stop, excel still more. But it's just a, a wonderful thing to see God's people respond to his word, um, you know, Paul in Philippians 4, he's trying to thank the church for their generosity and their gift, but he's trying to walk this fine line where it's like he doesn't want the, it to come across as though he wants more. He really wants to say, I am so thankful and so appreciative, and I'm looking forward to seeing how God is going to bless you even more because you're the kind of people that want to just give your whole lives to him, including your finances. So we're thankful for each of you. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're, consider, or we're continuing our series called out through the book of 1 Corinthians. I can't think of a better uh, title for a message when you're installing an elder and some new deacons than calling all the nobodies, because that's who God uses. And so I get to just come up here, and along with all of you, we're just a bunch of nobodies. Nobodies that God might use to exalt his name. And there's actually a blessing in being a nobody, even though the world might tell you differently. Not many people, maybe not even many Christians, would say it's a blessing to be a nobody. You might even hear things in the church saying, well, you need to be somebody. You need to make a name for yourself. You know, don't let anybody put you down. You don't deserve that kind of treatment. Now, if you start to believe things like that, or worse, if you actually start to think you are somebody, you are in deep trouble. Because God rejoices to use nobodies. Those are the people he calls, those are the people he chooses, and those are the people that he saves. So may we always rejoice in the fact that we are nobodies. Let's read this passage and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in other words, the nobodies, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need every day of remembering who we were when you called us. Pride wants to sneak in uh, every kind of nook and cranny in our lives as possible. Wants us to think that we're something. That we deserve certain treatment. We don't deserve other kinds of treatment. 
that we're really valuable, that life couldn't get by for so many people without us. And these may be things we're ne- we would never say, but they're oftentimes things we can think, even as believers. And so, Lord, we need this reminder that we are nobody, that we didn't do anything to procure our salvation. You did everything. We weren't searching for you. We weren't wise. We weren't strong. We weren't noble. But you called us anyway. And you chose us. Lord, we need this. We need this not only because it's the basis of our joy and our assurance that when we sin, that when we fall short and we think there's no way God knew what he was getting into when he called us, that this truth comes to us as a comfort. No, he chose you. It wasn't an accident. He knew exactly what he was doing. This truth is also the basis of our joy and our gratitude that we're nothing and you did everything and so we are so thankful. We gladly sing, you are worthy of it all. We are not worthy of anything. But in this passage in particular, this truth is the basis of our humility and our unity and our service to one another. That we think of ourselves as nobodies. So it's no, it's no big thing to serve another nobody. It's no big thing to love another nobody because we're all in the same place. So Lord, use this passage to humble us, to remind us who we are and who we were before you called us. Do great things through your word. Would your spirit convict our hearts and encourage our hearts as we look at this? We pray in Christ's name, amen. So just to kind of remind you of the context, this is a church that Paul's writing to. They are a church that Paul loves. They are a church that Paul is confident that God actually did a work in this church. He saved them. He calls them saints. He says they're sanctified. But there's a problem that's come into the church and that the church has sort of reverted back to worldly values, worldly standards in relationships and ministry. They're seeking worldly wisdom, worldly power. And what is it causing? It's causing division. It's causing strife. It's causing causing pride to bubble up. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is a problem that he's really going to track through these first four chapters. Turn over to chapter 3. He's still talking about the same thing. Chapter 3, verse 3. For you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You're thinking with worldly standards again. Like this guy's better than that guy. The people that follow this guy are better than the people that follow that guy. And you know through the rest of 1 Corinthians that the problem doesn't end there. There's sexual immorality in chapter 5. There are lawsuits happening in chapter 6. Why? I don't deserve this treatment. And then the other party's thinking, I don't deserve this either. I'm not going to budge for this person's sake. I'm not going to budge for them either. So what do they do? They have to go to a court to decide it. Later on, they're going to stumble each other. They're not going to care. I don't care what you think about meat sacrifice to idols. I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care what happens to you. They'll be boasting in their gifts. My gift is better than your gift. And these are the problems that happen. And the common denominator in all of these things is that everyone is thinking according to human worthiness. I'm better than this person. This person is not as good as me. And we have to be careful that we don't start thinking in those same terms. How many of you had the thought of this? I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I can't believe that this person did that to me. Don't they know who I am? What do all those thoughts have in common? Human worthiness. I'm worthy 
of a certain amount of respect. I'm worthy of a certain kind of treatment. And if those thoughts bubble up in your heart like they bubble up in mine, we have to be careful. Because it's a deadly issue. And I mean that literally. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. People were celebrating the Lord's Supper, but they were doing it really to make much of themselves, not much of Christ. They would come, they would bring their own food, they wouldn't share that food with other people. They would come, they'd enjoy the wine to the point that they're getting drunk. And what's supposed to give glory to God, they're using it to glorify themselves. And what does God think about that? Verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So they're doing this in a way that doesn't honor what communion is all about. And what does God think? What does God do in verse 30? That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. When ministry becomes about you and not about God, God takes that very seriously. He's saying there are people that are sick and ill because ministry has become about them. He says, I actually took people home because of that. There are people that are no longer in your midst because ministry was about them and not about him. So this is a deadly issue. And because it's a deadly issue, it requires strong medicine. And that's what 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31 is all about. It's God's antidote to human worthiness. And the answer is the cross. The cross destroys human worthiness. One, because as Tim preached last week, it's a foolish message When you tell people in the world that your only hope is a crucified Messiah, people think that's ridiculous. I don't need a crucified Messiah. I mean, sure, maybe I'll acknowledge that there's some sin in my life, but what I really need is just a little bit of self-help, right? If I just find the right book or I find the right program, then I'll be good. I don't need a crucified Savior. So God's got a foolish message that he's going to use to obliterate human pride. But not only that, he's going to save foolish people. That's who we are. And that's what this passage is all about. So if you want real humility, real unity, if you truly want to glorify God with your life, you have to remember, he is everything, you are nothing. God only calls, chooses, and saves nobodies. And so three humble considerations that will lead you to put off pride and find greater joy in God. God's calling, God's choice, and God's salvation. So first, consider your calling. Verse 26, that's exactly what it says. Consider your calling brothers. He says consider something, right? Look at it. Think about it. Bring it to mind. Right? He's saying that there's a tendency that we have to forget something very important. There's a tendency for us to live our life without realizing something vital. And so what are they supposed to look at? He says, consider your calling. Now when he says calling here, he doesn't mean like your vocation, like what you do, right? Like he called you to be a preacher, or he called you to be a stay-at-home mom, or he called you to be a banker. That's not what he's talking about. When he says, consider your calling, he's saying, consider the moment that God saved you. Right? When he says call, too, we have to make sure we understand what he means by call. He does not mean an invitation. This is not an invitation from God, like, here's an invitation to my birthday party. You know, maybe you'll come, maybe you won't. You'll probably wait until the last day to RSVP to see if something better comes along. Right? God, that's not what the calling that this is is talking about. God's not asking us to come in this calling. It's also not a wooing, right? This is not God holding a treat before the dog, saying like, come here, come on, come over here. God's not coaxing us. He's not begging us. That's not what this calling is. 
This calling is a summons. This calling is the moment that God brought you to himself. This is Isaiah 43.1. I have called you by name. You are mine. There was no deciding on our part. This was God wanted us and God took us. He called us. That's what Paul's saying. Remember your calling. It's what he referred to earlier. Look back at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Remember the day that God called you to himself. Maybe it was the hundredth time you heard the gospel message. And every other time, you felt like that is foolishness. That is stupid. That's a crutch. I don't want anything to do with that. There's no wisdom in that. There's no power in that. There's no glory in that. You thought that way for 99 times until the hundredth time when God called you to himself. And you saw the wisdom and power of God in the cross. Remember that day. Now, what specifically are you to remember about that day? Well, look what he says. Consider your calling, brothers, that what? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's like, geez, Paul, I mean, what a way to make friends. It's like telling all these people, standing up before them all, sending this letter, saying, you're a bunch of know-nothings, you had no influence, you had no status when God called you. But it's true. We weren't wise in the world's eyes when God called us. We weren't strong. We weren't people of great influence and status. I mean, how many Ivy Leaguers do we have here? I don't see any hands. Uh, Any CEOs? Billionaires when God called you? World leaders? Senators? High society? Any royalty? Princes? Princesses? Anybody? No. That's not who God calls. He calls nobodies. People that have been in and out of prison. People that flunked out of high school. People that had no, you know, family of any reputation. That's who he calls. He calls people that had nothing to offer the world, let alone anything to offer him. So do you believe that? Do you remember that? Because Paul's saying, sometimes you don't act like that. When you're saying things like, the preacher that I like, he's so much better than the preacher you like. I can't believe you like his sermons. This one is so much better. Or my gift, my gift is a real gift to the church. I mean, it's so much better than your gift, if you could even call it a gift. Or I give to the church. I don't ever have to take from the church. And you you would never say it, but you start to think things like, God sure is lucky to have me be a part of his church. Remember your calling. Because there's a tendency in each one of us to forget who we were when God called us. It's like, I'm an elder. Or I'm a deacon. I have a PhD. I've memorized Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. I've refuted every major theological error. Or I've been in this church since the day it started. I've been leading Bible studies. Again, you might never say it, but you're thinking, I deserve respect. This church is lucky to have me. I wish there could be more people like me in this church. And what do all these comments have in common? They're all about human worthiness. I, pride, self. When you start to think things like, don't they know who they're talking to? Or how dare they? These are all comments that say, I'm worthy of respect. I have value. 
You know, there's a saying in the South, right, that someone's getting a little too big for his britches. That's what Paul's talking about, where these people feel like they're God's gift to the church. They're saying, no, 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 you have it all wrong. Don't forget who you were when God called you. You were nobody. I mean, I think about my own salvation. Who was I when God called me? I was depressed. I was cynical. I was lazy. I played video games all day. I ate junk food all the time. And I was enslaved to all kinds of sin. That's who I was when God saved me. I wasn't searching for him. I wasn't wise. I wasn't rich. I wasn't influential. My family didn't have any clout. I didn't start off on a spiritual journey to discover truth. I didn't clean up my life. He just came and he said, you are mine. And that's what he does for all of us. He calls us when we're nobody. It's like, so do you remember that? Do you remember who you were? Not how you are now, but do you remember who you were when God called you? And even if you were saved at a young age, even if you grew up in the church and you never dove into the sins that other people dove into, do you see like you would have had God not graciously intervened at an early age? This is who we are. We're a bunch of nobodies. And yet God called us. So I hope you feel like a nobody because there's good news for nobodies. God calls nobodies. And God chooses nobodies. And God saves nobodies. And so let's look at this next point. So first, we're to consider our calling. Second, consider God's choice. God chooses nobodies. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Right? So Paul starts with, remember your experience, right? Remember what it was like the day that Christ saved you, the day that God opened your eyes. Remember who you were. And now consider that the way that God saved you is the way that he's always designed to save. He's always designed it to be choosing nobody's. Right? The reason he chose you, the reason he called you when you were a nobody is because he chose you as a nobody. This is all about God's choice. You are here because God chose you. And this isn't just true of Corinth. This is how God works, right? He called Abraham. Was it because Abraham was this godly man? It's like, no. He was just a nobody. Right? He called Jacob a lying, you know, trying to figure out all these ways, I mean, trying to steal things from his brother, a lying thief, he called Jacob. Jacob was a nobody. He called David. David was a nobody. He was the younger brother. They had to go through every other brother before they got to David. And yet God chose, he chooses nobodies. That's what he does. And the reason is because he doesn't have anyone else to choose from. The pool is nobody's. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Get you some uh, Old Testament workout in. Deuteronomy 7. Verse 6. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth who are on the face of the earth. And now you have to ask the question, why? There must have been something pretty amazing about this group of people that he would choose them. Look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. Right? You don't, like God wasn't thinking like, boy, I really need a great group of people that I can really work with. Let me go find the best, the brightest, the biggest country I can find. No, he didn't do it that way. 
He just chose, he set his love on you and chose you. In verse 8, why did he do it? It is because the Lord loves you. Do you notice the logic of that, those two verses? In verse 7, he set his love on you and chose you. Verse 8, because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. It's just who he chooses. He just chooses people to love. Chooses out of a sea of undeserving people just to love certain ones in a special way. Not on the basis of anything that they've done to deserve it. I loved you because I loved you. That's the reason. And it's because there are no worthy recipients of God's love. I mean, what do the Psalms say? No one seeks God. No one does good. All have turned aside and are following their own way. All are on the road to hell. So who's he going to choose from? Those are the only people he gets to choose from. And by God's grace, he does choose some. I was invited to speak at uh, John Sweat High School for their Christian club, and it was just a joy and a privilege to be able to do that. They wanted to bring in a pastor so they could do like a Q&A. So the second question that they asked was, how could a loving God send good people to hell? And I said, that is a great question, because that question has a lot of great assumptions. One, it assumes there is a God. Two, it assumes that if it's a God worth worshiping, he needs to be a loving God. If there's a God worth worshiping, he needs to be a just God. It also assumes that there's good and that there's bad and that there's a corresponding reward or punishment based on whether someone is good or bad. So there are all of these wonderful assumptions in that question. How could a loving God send good people to hell? But there's one wrong assumption in that question, and that's that there are good people. No one is good. No one seeks God. And in a sense, you could say, in a strict sense, everyone has chosen to get away from God. They're on the road to hell by their own choice. So in a strict sense, God doesn't send anyone to hell. Everyone goes there because that's where they want to go. Right? I mean, why is heaven heaven? Because God's there. That's the last place a sinner wants to go. I don't want to go to God. I'm spending my life getting away from him. So they're charted a course for their life. Every one of us charted a course for our life away from God. God's not sending anybody to hell. We're all going there by our own choice. And so the question really is not how could a loving God send good people to hell? It's how could a just God send bad people to heaven? And the answer to that question is the cross. That's how he can do it. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But as you look at this, who did God choose in verse 27? He chose the foolish He chose, in verse 27, the weak. He chose, in verse 28, the low and despised. Who were we when God chose us? We weren't people that thought correctly. We weren't people that had influence. We were the low and the despised, the nobodies. We weren't anybody that the world would consider to be a somebody. We were the things that are not the scum of the earth, the dregs of society. Paul will say that later in this letter. And so why would he choose the foolish, the weak, and the nobodies? Well, he's got one purpose he talks about. He says it's to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to bring to nothing the things that are. In other words, one of the reasons that Paul saved nobodies or that God saved nobodies, was to destroy the world's value system. The world has what it thinks is wise and strong and powerful and influential, and God says, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to disgrace it. I'm going to shame it. I'm going to shame the wise, shame the strong, dishonor them, show them that they're not wise, they're not strong. 
You know, the people who think that take pride in their knowledge, for all their learning, where are they going? They're perishing. For the people who take pride in their strength, for all their strength, where are they going? To hell. For the people that think they're somebody, where are they going to spend eternity? Apart from God. So God says, I'm going to shame the world and shame the world's value system. In fact, he says, I'm going to bring it to nothing at the end of verse 28, right? I'm going to abolish it. I'm going to wipe it out. This is God doing a body slam on, you know, the world's value system, right? I'm going to jump from the top rope and slam human achievement onto the ground and show that it's nothing. There is no human achievement before a holy God. But we don't think that way, right? We still think like, oh, if God could save Elon Musk, right? Oh, if he could save like Jeff Bezos, right? Or Brad Pitt, if he could save someone who's like influential and strong and rich, then that would really show the world something, right? If God could save these influential celebrities, then we would look less crazy and maybe the world would listen to our message a little bit more. But God says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. Because if I did it that way, who gets the glory? The celebrity gets the glory, right? The rich man gets the glory. So we say, we want Brad Pitt, we want Harry Styles. If you could save someone like that, then what does God do? He saves the Kirk Camerons and the Kevin Sorbos of the world to shame the strong, to shame the influential so that he gets all the glory. That's what it says, right? Verse 29, why does he do it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I'm going to exclude all human boasting. So can you say like Paul, I wasn't smart, I was a fool. I wasn't strong, I was weak. I wasn't a somebody, I was a nobody. Do you believe that? Then why don't we act like it all the time? Why do we still make everything about us and not about him? Why can't we get along with each other? Why can't we prefer one another? Why can't we serve each other? Why are we so easily offended? Why can't we let things go? Why do you find people to be a burden and find it hard to welcome and include people that are new? If you really believe this, we would act differently. We'd be humble. We'd be servants. We would love people, the least of these. You know, I mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, election is seen as the basis of so many good things, right? It's the basis of our assurance, right? When you're in the, the depths of sin and you think, God, you made a mistake. You didn't know what you were getting into when you saved me. We go back to, no, you ch he chose us. He knew what he was getting, and he chose us anyway. Or other places, election is the assurance of gratitude. It's the basis of gratitude. I had nothing to offer God. And I had no hope of salvation. So what did he do? He did everything. And that gives you joy and gratitude. But here, in this context, in 1 Corinthians, election is what God uses to destroy human pride. You brought nothing to the table. He did everything. Because if you believe that there's any reason in yourself that God saved you, then you would have a cause for boasting. But he says, no, I did it this way so that there's no boasting before me. If you believe there's any merit in yourself, then you will never be humble. And you'll get into fights and arguments and hold on to things for years if you believe that you had any part in your salvation, then you will never maximize his glory through your life. Because at some level, it's not just about him, it's about me. He says, I, I want to destroy all human pride by choosing the nobodies. Now, I understand that this is a hard truth, 
Sometimes it's a truth that we react very emotionally towards. And it's really a truth that I wasn't particularly, you know, I didn't particularly like it when I got saved. I got saved in college. I got plugged into a good church. I started serving. You know, it wasn't long before I was teaching our college group Bible study. I was going on missions trips. And though I would never have said it, I think there was a part of me that really felt like, you know what? God is pretty lucky to have me. I was proud. I thought I had something to offer God. So the first time that I heard that God was sovereign in choosing and that I had nothing to do with it, I was like, no, that doesn't sound right. No, I'm, 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 I mean, there's probably a reason he picked me, right? I mean, to use my intellect and to my, you know, my strength and my influence, God needed me. I would never say that, but that's why the emotions ran so high. And a friend of mine shared a quote from John Piper as I was struggling through this. Did God really do everything? And did I do nothing? He shared this quote. He says, emotions run high when you feel your man-centered world crumbling around you. And I was faced with the question, will I let God be God? Or will I mold him into the God that I want him to be? Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord and I will not share my glory with another. He's going to glorify himself. He's going to remove all human boasting. And though I thought of that as a bad thing at the time, that that's some sort of like, you know, egotistical thing on the part of God to be consumed with his own glory, it's actually a great thing. What else should God be consumed with? If God was consumed with anything other than himself, he would be an idolater. So it's a wonderful thing that God is consumed with his own glory. And it's good for us as his people because we get to be the people he wants to glorify himself through. I'm going to take an unworthy people, a people who don't deserve it at all, not one iota, and I'm going to shower my love on them I'm going to save them. I'm going to do for them everything that they can't do for themselves. And in the end, I'll get all the glory. This question of God choosing, it gets down to the basic issue of, you have to answer the question, why did he save me? And if you have, Steve Lawson says, if there's any part of your answer that includes you, then there's still too much you in you. And you need to let God be God and give him all the glory. And he's worthy of all the glory, just as we sang, because he does everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. That's the last point. Number three, consider God's salvation, that God puts nobodies in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So track what he's saying, right? God chose, God chose, God chose because of him you are in Christ Jesus. What's the reason you're in Christ Jesus? Him, not you, right? He did the calling, he did the choosing, he did the sending of his son, right? He did the redeeming. You didn't do any of it because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what's so great about being in Christ Jesus? Well, look what he says. Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom from, in other words, Christ became for you everything that you need, but would have never been able to receive had God not put you in him. I mean, what mercy and grace that foolish, weak nobodies could be in Christ Jesus. He's everything that we need. Go back to verse 22. He is the wisdom of God. Verse 22. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom. In other words, Jews think, if I could just, if there's like a powerful sign, 
If there was some sort of, you know, secret program that I could get into, then I would have everything that I need. And then he says, Greeks seek wisdom. That if I could just get a new philosophy, right, if I could find the right expert who knew all the right things, then that would be everything that I need. He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We think, I need a better philosophy. I need a better program. There's going to be more power in that. You don't need a philosophy. You don't need a program. What you need is a cross. And that's exactly what God gave, and it's something you could never get for yourself. It came from him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. What is it that you needed? What does he say? You needed righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And those are the statuses that actually matter. Not being wise in the world's eyes, not being rich, not being influential. You don't need those things. You need righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You need righteousness. You need to be declared not guilty. That's what you need. You're in the courtroom, and you're sitting there, and you see all the charges that are leveled against you, and you have no way of getting rid of those charges. You could add good works, but that won't take away the bad things. So what do you need? You need not guilty. And you only get that through Christ. He's the one who comes in, and he says, I did everything that you could never do. And I never did any of the things that you're doing. And so you can be not guilty. You can be righteous. You can walk out of that courtroom free. But he's also your sanctification. He's what sets you apart. He's what makes you new. He didn't just clear the slate. He actually gives you a new heart. He takes away the heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh so that you have new desires. Because one of the things that God does when he opens your eyes, you think, how could I have lived like that? And he changes your heart so that you actually live differently. He puts his spirit inside of you so that you can please him now. You have the power to please God. Where did you get that? Did you find it? No, he put you in Christ. And you have redemption. Freedom. Real freedom. The price was paid to set you free and he redeemed you for himself and he adopted you into his family. Why? Because you were so smart. Because you were so strong. Because you were so influential. No. Because God just chose to put you in Christ Jesus. These are the things that truly matter. And where do you find all of the things that you need? In Christ Jesus. And how did you find yourself in Christ Jesus at the beginning of verse 30? Because of him. Not you. Because of him. So I ask those of you that maybe are not in, the, in Christ Jesus in this moment, have you seen the emptiness of the wor- all that the world has to offer? Or has God allowed you to see your unworthiness? That I'm not smart, I'm not rich, I'm not influential, I'm just nobody. Then ask God to put you in Christ Jesus. And he will be for you the wisdom of God. He will be righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And God delights to do it. When you come to him and you say, I have nothing to offer you. I am completely dependent on you. I am hopeless without you. Would you put me in Christ? He'll do that. Don't play the mind game of like, oh, I'm not chosen, so that's why I'm not coming. No, he's not preventing you from coming. You're preventing you from coming. Right? You're going the wrong way. He's not forcing you to do that. So call on him. Ask him, put me in your son. I don't want to go the way that I'm going anymore. Put me in Christ so that I might have righteousness that I don't have, that you have, so that I might have sanctification that I can't produce in my own life, so that I might have redemption and be brought into your family. I can't do any of those things, and I don't deserve any of those things. Would you put me in your son? Ask him to do that. 
and he will do that because he'll get all the glory. Because you don't want any of it. You acknowledge you don't have any of it. You don't deserve any of it, and so he would get it all. So ask him, put me in your son. That's where this all goes. Verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in myself. I don't boast in myself. I boast in the Lord because it's all him. He's worthy of it all. Paul's quoting Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9. In the context of Jeremiah 9, these are God's people. This is Israel. And God has done great things for Israel. I mean, think about all the things that God has done. He brought them out of captivity in Egypt. He did signs and wonders and miracle after miracle after miracle. They walked across a sea on dry ground. One of the elders said they had dusty feet as they walked across the sea. How does that work? But God was bringing them out. He brought them to a land. Did they have any hope of, you know, their small little band of people defeating all the peoples of that land? No, but God won all their battles. Walls came tumbling down before them, not because of their smarts or their strength or their status, but because God was redeeming a people that didn't deserve it. He brought them into places where they had homes that they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig. And how did Israel respond to all of these blessings? Rather than saying, isn't God amazing? Their thoughts were, well, we must really be something for God to do all these wonderful things for us. And so pride gets in. And if you read through the ver- chapter 9, you'll see that there's lying, there's slander, there's oppression, there's injustice. Why? Because they start to feel like we deserve the things that we get. And then then pride ruins humility, it ruins service, it ruins gratitude. So what's the solution? Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, and this only, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And that's what Paul's quoting, right? You hear those same terms, right? Not, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches. Boast in one thing, that you understand and you know me that I am the Lord. So you think back to 1 Corinthians 1. Think back to what is this text solving? What problem is this text solving? It's solving the problem of division. That I'm better than this person. That this preacher is better than that person. That the people who like this preacher are better than the people that like that preacher. Or maybe in our time, we might think thoughts like this. Or maybe ask the questions, are there divisions in your life? Though you would never say it, do you think that you're better than someone else? Are you frustrated that God seems to use and bless people that you don't think deserve to be used and blessed? Are you hung up on the past? How someone treated you 10 years ago? Like, let it go. And remember, I'm just a nobody who has no business being in Christ Jesus. And if a person thinks I'm a loser, like, they're probably right. And I'd be even worse if God didn't save me. But I'm in Christ, so who cares what people think about me? Who cares about my reputation? This truth is liberating, right? You get freed from what people think about you. You don't have to worry about that anymore. It's like the things that God can do through a bunch of nobodies who know and remember they're just nobodies. He can do great things. I mean, we're all just a bunch of nobodies that God chose to save, and now he gets to use. And if we remember that, 
God can do great things even through us because God loves to use nobodies to accomplish great things because he gets all the glory. So pay attention, right? When you hear that, when the, those feelings of pride start to bubble up, I don't deserve this. Don't they know who I am? How could you do this to me? People are a burden, not a blessing. When those things start to creep up, go back to this passage and consider your calling and consider that God chose you when you didn't deserve it and consider that God put you in his son so that you could have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now, if we neglect to do those things and we let pride come in, God will deal with us. And he dealt with the church in Corinth in drastic ways. But if we remember that we're just a bunch of nobodies and we remain humble and grateful and God-glorifying, then God can do wonderful things even through us. Let's pray. Father, it's a, an odd thing to come together as a group of people and rejoice over the fact that we're just a bunch of nobodies. Lord, I hope we can all say that we don't want the glory, we don't want any glory. That we would say like the psalmist, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Father, would you forgive us of our pride? Lord, would you reveal our pride to us? The times where we think we deserve certain treatment or we don't deserve other kinds of treatment. Those are all just subtle ways that pride wants to get into our hearts and make us feel like we're worthy of something. But we're not. We are just trophies of your grace the foolish, the weak, the nobodies that you chose. And we don't even know why other than to say you did it because you did it. You loved us because you loved us. You chose us because you chose us. There was nothing in ourselves that we were worthy of anything. So Lord, may we be a humble people. May we not find it a hard thing to serve someone else. May we not find it a great offense if somebody doesn't think too well of us. May we remember we're just nobodies. And there's actually joy. The, the life of a nobody is a life of joy when we've been chosen by you. And we just get to go around the rest of our lives giving you glory and you honor. You get all of it. We get none of it. We don't want any of it. We want you to have it all. You're worthy of it all. Use us. Do great things. Lord, this church was founded by a nobody. And this church grew and had influence through a bunch of nobodies. Lord, may we remember that's who we are. And may you do great things. Do great things through us, a bunch of nobodies, because in the end, you'll get all the glory. So keep us humble. Amen. Keep us servants, all of us, servants of one another and servants of those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.